Welcome to Optimizing, the podcast about leading Africa's digital future. I'm Professor Barry Dwalatsky. And I'm Karen Gammy. Season two has the theme, Receiving and Passing the Baton. We're in conversation with people who have shaped or will shape Africa's digital future. Each conversation draws on the metaphor of life as a relay race. Our guests will talk about how they received the baton, who and what influenced them as they started life's journey. We will then discuss their own journey, how they nurtured and grew the baton in their hands. Finally, we will ask them about what it is that they will pass on to the next generation of leaders and experts. Today we are speaking to Tim Jenkin. Tim is a South African social and political activist. Tim is really hard to describe. I guess that describing uh, someone involves putting them into a box. And any time someone tries to put Tim into a box, he escapes. And therein lies something he is best known for. In 1978, as an underground operative of the African National Congress, Tim was arrested by the apartheid police and sentenced to 12 years in prison. A year later, he and two others escaped from Pretoria's maximum security prison. He wrote about this amazing story in his book, Escape from Pretoria, which has uh, just been released as a movie starring Daniel Radcliffe as Tim. While working in London for the exiled ANC in the 1980s, he developed an entire system for secure computer-based communication that made a huge impact on how the ANC waged the underground struggle. I think this is even a more amazing story than his escape from Pretoria. Tim has written about this story in a series of articles called Talking to Vula. Um, in the uh, 1990s, Tim returned to South Africa from exile and um, he continued to do very amazing, innovative stuff in the digital and in other spheres. One of these is the concept of community exchange, which we'll discuss with Tim later. In summary, Tim is a unique individual who has led a fascinating, impactful, and inspiring life. Um, this conversation is based on the metaphor of life as a relay race. As always, I'm joined in this conversation by Karen Gammy. Karen is a young data scientist and a developer of AI systems. She's part of the generation who will receive the baton that my generation will pass on to Africa's future digital leaders. Tim, to start with, um, could we talk about how your race started? Can you tell us a bit about how you got going? Uh, what was the young Tim like? Who and what inspired you? Uh, who were some of the most influential people who passed you the baton that you have carried through your life? Great to talk to you guys. Um, my life uh, started, well, at least, uh, well, it started when I was born, obviously, but the story that we're talking about starts really when 
when I finished school in in South Africa and I grew up in the heyday of apartheid in the 1960s and 70s and uh, when I left school you know I was a model apartheid typical white South African knew nothing about the country I lived in uh, I guess I was just a regular racist I suppose as all of us were at that time and um, I only began to find out about South Africa when I left the country so I had to travel abroad I took a gap year after finishing school wanted to see the world and I started seeing films about South Africa on television of course we'd never even seen television in South Africa at that stage so it was all quite remarkable to me and what I was seeing seemed to be films about uh, a country that I didn't know. It was some country on another planet. Uh, it was telling me about apartheid, a term I'd almost never heard of. And it was showing protests and the history of the struggle against apartheid and living conditions of black people, and I knew nothing about this. And at first, I in fact thought it was all propaganda. And that was what I had been told, you know, when you get to England you'll see all these propaganda films about South Africa. Just ignore them, they're all rubbish. And that's what I thought. But the more I saw and um, I started reading books, and the attraction was we knew that so many books were banned in South Africa, and people were saying to me, have you read this book or that book? And it was quite exciting to read a banned book. And um, suddenly I realized that you know, I'd been living uh, my entire life, my 20 years had been a complete lie and knew nothing about the country I lived in. But um, then I left after a year and came back to South Africa and uh, did a, a degree course at UCT uh, in the social sciences. I was studying sociology and, um, and economics and psychology. Um, I was just very interested in the social aspect of things. I was still very naive. Uh, but I started to take efforts, make efforts to go and look and see if what I learned about apartheid was true. And sure enough, it, it was, you know. Um, I'd never in my life been to a black township. I looked around and, and I was shocked to find out that uh, it was even worse than I'd been led to believe in these films about South Africa. So my starting point was, I guess, there, that point. You know, I was just so shocked that I'd lived this life and I just felt I had to do something about it. But I didn't have any batons to pick up, you know. It was not as if uh, a family had come to me or my family had any background in, in challenging um, the regime or any views on apartheid or anything, so I had no one to guide me. And it was really just people I met at university who had also followed a similar path and were now questioning the reality that they lived in. Um, so it was really from scratch, I guess, if you want to talk about uh, the baton, um, I guess it was those films and the books that I was reading and perhaps, well I can't say it was the other students because they were also starting from the blocks, you know. So that was our starting point. And it was, with, and it, it, it sounds like a very similar trajectory to me. So 
people don't realize how successful apartheid was in keeping people separate and in giving us a a a watered down view or a whitewashed view of what wow. our country was um when i read your book escape from pretoria uh which was a fast which is a fascinating book and i recently watched the movie which i really enjoyed in spite of the fact that some of the south Af fake south african accents are dreadful i was struck by the way your mind seems to work um to me you come across as a problem solver and someone who can simultaneously see the big picture and the minute details and i think anyone who sees the film or reads the book will kind of know what i mean when i say that you you focused on big pictures and minute uh, details in my experience these are some of the key attributes of a um computer programmer or a or a a, a typical engineer and yet you chose to study social sciences at UCT uh were you ever tempted to study computer science or engineering you ask me if i um was tempted to study uh, computer science but of course there was no such thing at, in my time and uh, i never thought of being an engineer because actually mathematics was my worst subject at school I had this terrible, terrible teacher in the very first years who used to beat us up if we didn't learn our times tables. <laughs> so ever since then I hated mathematics, but it actually turned out that I was good at it in the end. Um, so, yeah, computer science, well, there weren't any computers. There was, there was, I don't think even, you know, I was at university in the early 1970s, I don't think there was a computer department at all at UCT so um, yeah it wasn't so it wasn't really an option for you it wasn't really an option and, and I was very interested in the social aspect you know after traveling abroad and yeah um, I was sort of politically energized so my thinking was more along those lines yeah uh, Karen so this is a, I mean, I'm a big fan of the social sciences. I also did a humanities degree at UCT and then went into data science. So I'm very much like, yes, do humanities. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting to me. Um, I guess, you know, I know a, a little bit about you and, and I haven't quite seen the movie yet. Um, I definitely will. But obviously just knowing what I know, you know, I can gauge that uh, you went through somewhat of a, a roller coaster of life, and there were these highs and these lows. And I think a lot of people, you know, give up when they hit some of the really tough lows. And I guess I'm interested to understand sort of how you felt when you were when you were sentenced to to spend those twelve years in prison. Well, the actual sentencing, you know, the day they pronounced that I was to serve twelve years in prison was i wouldn't say it was a low because it was exactly what i was expecting i think the low of course was getting arrested and for me that was like the supreme low that was i'd lost <laughs> i'd let down my side i'd failed um i'd allowed them to get one over us you know so that was the worst thing was um, 
being arrested and then interrogated because that's very humiliating, you know, to be interrogated, for them to force information out of you. And um, um, after, after the interrogation took place, we appeared in uh, a court and they said they weren't granting us bail and they were going to hold us as awaiting trial prisoners until the time of our trial. And it was in that period that um, myself and my colleague Stephen Lee, we were arrested together, uh, and we were held in Polesmoor Prison in Cape Town. And we started thinking about escape from that point, and we managed to smuggle in a book called Papillon. I don't know if you've heard about it, it's a very famous book about a, a, a French prisoner in the 1930s and he was a serial escaper and he wrote this book which we managed to get in the prison and it turned out to be a complete manual of escape. So we took note of the points that he made about escaping and getting away from your prison once you've escaped and we started to plan and we managed to smuggle in some money. One of his points was if you got no assistance to escape you need to have money and so we smuggled some in. So we were even before our trial we decided we were going to escape. So the trial we just saw as a kind of barrier in the way of <laughs> carrying out our escape and, and the sentence was actually good in the sense that now we were official prisoners and we were off to our prison so we, so we knew that uh, we could put our plan into into effect. So, yeah, it was almost a high point getting the sentence. <laughs> so, um, and um, I don't want to steal the thunder from, uh, from the movie or the book, but I would recommend people listening to this should either read the book or watch the movie, because it is a fascinating tale, and uh, the punchline is everyone guess, because it's called Escape from Pretoria, you did escape, and uh, you landed up in London. And uh, when you were in London, you went about um, solving the problem of how to communicate securely within the context of the David and Goliath struggle between the African, African National Congress underground structures and apartheid South Africa. So people uh, should realize what a mis what a a mismatch this fight was. Um, apartheid South Africa was the most sophisticated military force in Africa and worked closely with their uh, friends in uh, British and American and Western intelligence. And uh, to uh, many it was a front for the Cold War and uh, they had all the resources, te technological and otherwise, to throw behind the struggle. And the, um, the underground of the ANC was a very, uh, I'm, I'm almost tempted to say it was a Mickey Mouse organization, which isn't kind, but it was very under-resourced, very um, small in comparison, and really communication was at the heart of the whole thing. Um, and you faced the problem that many tech, tech innovators today face, 
you could conceptualize a solution, you could think through how secure communication could happen, but you, uh, but you, you uh, found yourself and your colleagues uh, didn't have all the technical skills you needed to implement it. Many tech in, or many people with great ideas would then throw up their hands and say, well, I can't do it because I don't know how. But what you did is you learnt a lot of the technical stuff. And I'm just interested to know how you went about learning the technical stuff. In an age before YouTube videos and zillions of online courses, how did you go about learning the tech stuff you needed? Well, as you've pointed out, it wasn't easy. You know, there were no online courses, mainly because there was no such thing as online. There was no internet. Uh, there were no courses of any kind of, you know, how to, mm, how to, well, you could get books, you know, there were good bookstores and there were, um, in the 80s, books were beginning to appear about encryption and things like that, but it was more at a very high level. They weren't books designed for political activists. So we had, we had n no examples to follow, you know, there'd never been um, a political or a liberation struggle where computer communications had been used, so we had no examples to follow. Um, so we essentially had to work it out ourselves. And just stepping back a bit, you know, in when I was an activist in in the 70s, our biggest problem and probably the reason for our arrest was simply because we didn't have proper communications. What we had to use in those days was really the postal system because our handlers lived abroad. So we used secret inks and all kinds of um, encryption, hand encryption systems, but it was very tedious and a round communication could take a month, you know, going by by uh, snail mail. And when I ended up in exile in the UK, I was recruited by the ANC to teach activists the skills that are needed for underground activists, in other words, to do the more or less the same thing that we did. And I wanted to improve the technology, you know, we couldn't use secret inks in the postal system. So the first thing was um, to try and speed it up, to use the telephone system. Now you can't talk over a telephone, but when you encrypt, you can use a system that reduces or changes or uh, transform your plain text through the encryption process into a series of numbers. And one way of transmitting those numbers was simply by pressing the buttons on a, on a touchstone telephone, so the DTMF system, and uh, the person on the far end could simply record those sounds, and we could provide them with a little device that would interpret those tones back into numbers. So that was like a huge step forward. But this was still before any computers were available for the general public. You couldn't go to a high street store and just buy a computer or a laptop as you can today, or even a, we do it on our mobile phones. So that was quite a big advance, is that 
sending messages like that and recording them because then you could even speed it up you could um, record the message at home uh, onto a tape recorder and then take the tape recorder to even a public telephone and you have an agreed time when you do it and the other person on the far end records the tones converts them back to numbers and then deciphers so yes <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question but um, we had nothing to go on so it was just trial and error really and um, understanding the the available technology at the time we used to go to electronic shows to go and find out what's the latest gadget and that's how we discovered this tone system and um, after that we moved across to computers when the very first computers home computers became available this was even before uh, the first IBM PC in the early 1980s we started experimenting with these things so it was quite a struggle and also uh, learning about encryption um, these were sort of high-end books written by mathematicians for people who have this kind of high-level <laughs> understanding of, of uh, secure communications and it was something that we didn't really understand and we knew we didn't have the time to sit for months or years trying to learn this thing so we discovered this system called a one-time system which is a, is said to be the only unbreakable encryption system but it's incredibly simple to implement and uh, that's what we did so always it was the most basic technology available um, and we had no money to do it so we almost out of our pocket money had to to fund these things and so it was a challenge all the way through pretty much every time I talk to to Prof Barry um, about just what tech used to look like I'm always just so grateful that things are so much easier now like you can literally just learn any kind of coding language um, from literally no fewer than a zillion websites uh, so hearing you talk about this and they're not even being like a good I don't know socialist guide to I don't know positive hacking or whatever is just blowing my mind um, yeah that sounds really really tough um, you spoke a little bit about kind of like the mechanisms that you you all used uh, to make communication possible which is super cool uh, and yeah you know the the one-time system encryption uh, protocol is still very widely used and it is so simple and brilliant um, but I guess I'm curious like for me as someone who's grown up in the age of internet and access and accessibility and social media where it's a lot easier to find information out um, I'm curious to understand sort of what exactly digital communications was like for folks who were working underground in South Africa to then use the systems you developed yes what we developed was something quite unique as I said we had no examples to follow so we just simply tried out different things um, our problem was that the activists in the country <coughs> had no computers or no one had computers no one even knew how to use one uh, nobody was trained no one had uh, the ability or the understanding 
<clears throat> and there was no internet, so we couldn't just hook up to some line. We almost, in a sense, had to invent our own internet, although we weren't thinking in those terms at the time. So to cut a long story short, our technology worked as follows. So we designed this one-time system, encryption system, and um, the problem with the one-time system, of course, is that you have this massive key problem because both sides need to have the key, and the key is always as long as your message. So if your message is 1K long, your key has to be exactly the same length. So that means your key gets used up very quickly. Uh, that's apart from having keys that are absolutely random and never get used more than once. So we had, uh, in the late 1980s, the first laptops became available and uh, we sent these into the country obviously trained the people before they did and the training involved right from the beginning saying this is the on-off switch this is a keyboard this is the screen <laughs> and this is what happens when you press these keys so people knew nothing so we had to go through right the basics to show people how to even use a computer so then these computers were smuggled into the country and people would then just type up their messages in plain text, uh, press a few buttons and uh, it would encrypt the message. So the key was held on a floppy disk, it would read the random data, the same length as the message, use that to encrypt the message, and then it would wipe those numbers from the disk. And then uh, the encrypted message would be sent out the back of the computer through its serial port through what was known as an acoustic modem which in the old days even modems were sort of manual they didn't even plug straight into the phone line you took your telephone and the handset fitted into the top of the acoustic modem there were two cups one for sending and one for receiving and it would simply play a sound, a high-pitched tone, like a fax machine, which you could record onto a tape recorder. And then that tape recorder you would take to a safe telephone, in most cases that was a, a public telephone, and then you would dial a number in London, which was in fact uh, an answering machine, and the answering machine would say, please leave a message after the tone. And then you would press the play on your uh, tape recorder and would play that message to the answering machine. And then to pick up a message, um, you would dial another number, which would be another answering machine. And that answering machine would simply straight away play the digital message. So it would just be a high-pitched tone, which you would then record... Uh, onto your tape recorder, then you take the tape recorder home, plug it into the acoustic modem, the modem would turn the sounds into digital, and uh, it would enter the computer, of course, and then you would decipher it, and the, and the plain message would appear. So it sounds absolutely horrific to anyone who uses the, <laughs> the internet today and encryption, 
but it really worked. So for the first time in the history of the ANC, they were sending and receiving messages almost in real time. So you could uh, send a message in the morning, and then that message would be sent to London, and from London would forward it to the leadership in uh, Lusaka in Zambia in pretty much the same way, and you would get a reply within a few hours, and they could then get a response within a few hours. And this was the first time in the history of the ANC that it had been possible to have this kind of communication. So you can imagine how much this sped up the whole um, underground struggle. So for the first time you could actually send leadership figures into the country. You could now communicate with each other, uh, with communicate with London and communicate with various other points in Europe who were doing work for the ANC and also with the leadership in uh, Lusaka. So, yeah, I'm sure to your ears that sounds sort of <laughs> technologically backward, but it was a huge advance. And in that way, in a sense, we kind of created our own global network. I don't think anyone had ever done anything like that before or since. Yeah, and uh, just to say that it, it sounds so painstaking and complex, but it's exactly how the internet works today. So if you cut out all the modems and the tapes and everything else, it is about um, sending coded uh, digital uh, tones through very fast fiber optics and things, and it, it is those steps it goes through. So, I mean, it's, it's a, um, a kind of grand sweep, but to say that what you were doing then was inventing the internet before the internet. And I think it was absolutely brilliant. So, um, in fact, we met in London and worked uh, together on some aspects of your communication system um, you might remember that you also trained me in field craft, which I know was deadly serious, but I must admit it was also fun. So we would spend uh, days on weekends following each other on the underground and through the streets of London, trying not to, to be seen by the other or following strangers and playing around with walkie-talkie radios. So... Um, um, having trained me and um, in uh, 1989, I came back to South Africa to work in um, the this underground movement as one of your so-called secret agents while you grew your secure communication networks um, to uh, cope with this rapidly changing situation. At, and at that time, soon after I got back to South Africa, Mandela and the leadership were released and suddenly it became clear that apartheid had been defeated. Uh, you wrote in one of your Talking to Vula articles about you seeing for the first time something written by Mandela arrive on your computer and people should, should uh, be aware that uh, Mandela hadn't been seen or heard in public for decades so he was this sort of mythical, unknown person. And suddenly you, sitting in London, had a message from him on your computer. So um, can you just 
talk a little bit about what it was like for you to live through those times and to realize that in spite of what you might have been thinking, you would be coming back to South Africa soon. How did you feel at that time? Well, obviously when uh, that message, at least the first one from Mandela, appeared on my computer screen, I mean, it was so clear to me that this was the first time in the history of the man <laughs> that anyone in the world had read a digital message from him. He was, although obviously he didn't have any equipment in his cell, he uh, was in contact with our network through his lawyer who managed to smuggle him an initial note explaining how the system worked. And thereafter, um, Mandela was provided with uh, special books. He was allowed to receive books and uh, we'd created these um, books with a false compartment in the, um, in the cover and he, he, the lawyer demonstrated or explained to Mandela how to, to open the cover and to get the message out and how to slip another one in and how to reseal it. And that's how the messages were, were smuggled in and out to Mandela and then immediately the messages were typed up, encrypted and sent through our network. Um, the network by this stage, this was late 1989 had evolved from from the system that I just described using the tape recorders because the first kind of email systems had become available. There was a thing called CompuServe and the British Telecom also had its own um, email system and we started to use that. So we could send much longer messages and um, yeah, so to see that first message is from Mandela, but it's the most exciting part of it was that uh, the regime was speaking to Mandela because they were planning to release him and they were discussing with him the terms of his release. And what they were trying to do was actually create a rift between Mandela and the ANC because other people were meeting with the ANC in Lusaka and other places around the world and they were trying to create a split by by um, playing on slight differences but they couldn't find any differences between what Mandela was saying and what the ANC was saying and I think this must have puzzled them and the reason was because of this communication that was going on backwards and forwards at quite a, quite a pace because Mandela was sending out long reports reporting back exactly what they were discussing with him and then that would go to Lusaka and the entire ANC leadership would read it and they would send back a long report and so the two sides were speaking with the same voice they were both on the same page and somehow they couldn't understand this so this is very important actually in the history of of the ending of apartheid. They couldn't make this split and imagine if we hadn't had this communication system what could have happened? You know you release Mandela on certain terms and he's saying something and uh, the rest of the ANC is saying something quite different. They could have played on those differences and uh, the outcome might have been very different. 
So, and I think, uh, you know, and you, you are, and I've sort of known you as being a very modest person, but I think really the work that you did with others, but the work that you did really did have a profound impact on the future of the country. Um, and in 1990, in the, I think it was 1990 or 1991 that you returned and you, you uh, worked prior to the, to the 94 end of apartheid officially. And then beyond that, you worked within the structures of the ANC to help to, to uh, develop digital infrastructure within their head office. And you um, and in this modern age, we would call this digital transformation. So you were a pioneer of digitally transforming uh, both with your communication system and the work you subsequently did in the ANC headquarters. You transformed this very old and very conservative organization to bring it into the digital age. Um, and this is a challenge that many people today face looking at organizations and how to um, to transform them digitally. And uh, just reflecting back on that time and that work you did, what were the major challenges that you found and how did you overcome them in bringing an old conservative organization into the digital age? Yes, it wasn't easy to bring the ANC into the 21st or into the 20th century uh, because no one had any experience of computers at all. In fact, when the ANC came to power, they told me that in Parliament they found one fax machine for the entire of Parliament. That was the sum total of it. Um, so no one had computers and the ANC, uh, before 1994, in fact, um, um, set up a network of local offices all over South Africa. Some of these were provincial offices and some of them were just sort of regional. I can't remember how many there were, but there were something like 20. And I traveled all around the country and went to each one of these offices and each time I had to take a brand new computer and a modem and go there and install this thing and train someone in how to not only how to communicate but how to even use a computer again starting right from scratch this is the on off button and we set up a network between uh, the headquarters in Johannesburg and all of these offices all around the country using a system of bulletin boards which was kind of the precursor to the internet so at this stage there was still no internet we're talking about starting in 1991 through to the end of 94 when I left the headquarters so we had this bulletin board system and we set up uh, the first digital newspaper I guess one must have been one of the very first in South Africa um, I remember when I was working in London the ANC published a weekly news bulletin called the weekly well, it was called a weekly news bulletin and it's 
used to take them an entire week to produce this thing because it was quite manual. They had to get the newspapers, cut it, cut them out, retype it, um, typeset them, and then print them, and then distribute them. And we managed to do the exact same thing on a daily basis. So we had these uh, news feeds from SARPA and somewhere else, and we would capture these news feeds and then feed them into a word processor. And someone would take out the articles of less importance and put together an electronic bulletin. And then every day we would post the, the electronic bulletin on the bulletin board and all the officers would dial in and download um, the electronic bulletin board and then print it out locally. So every day they had a, a news briefing from the ANC. And this was widely used during the election campaign. We had a, a branch, an elec almost electronic branch with computers producing daily material for the MPs and so on, the, the activists for the election. And we were pumping out electronic stuff and, sin and distributing it. And then when the, the internet became available, uh, I was then sent to Cape Town to set up a sub-headquarter office and we started the first website for the ANC. And this was, I think, in 1995. It was one of the very, very first websites in the entire country. I remember we had a, a page on the ANC's website called Websites in South Africa and had all the sites <laughs> on one page and most of those were universities and a few businesses. Amazing. And um, so we started that website and put a lot of historical documents on there and it became a fantastic resource for activists. And it grew and grew and grew and became a very valuable resource of historical documents. Um, this is so cool. Uh, just, I mean, I'm just taking it all in and just like hearing about the ways in which you've engaged with tech when tech was not at all accessible. It's just like, yeah, it's really, really cool and super inspiring. Um, I guess like it, it, to kind of like fast forward a little bit, I know that sort of more recently you've obviously continued to, to innovate and create and sort of um, continue with social entrepreneurship. And I know one of the things that you've worked on is this project called Community Exchange. And for those of you who are listening and haven't heard of Community Exchange, I would strongly recommend going onto their website because it's super, super dope. Um, but Tim, since we have you on this, this podcast, um, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Um, what inspired you to do it? How you got involved in it? Well, I started to do it um, sort of the uh, after the turn of the century, after 2000, you know, um, I remained a, a political activist. As I said, I was sent to Cape Town. I worked for the ANC until uh, 1997 when they closed down that sub-headquarter office. And we were running the ANC's website and in fact doing um, websites for all the government departments, even the Department of Communications. None of these government departments had had um, IT departments, they'd never had computers at all and so we were doing all their websites and developed uh, a lot of experience 
but when they closed down this headquarters they said to us um, we can give you guys a retrenchment package um, and we said no don't do that we'll just buy all the equipment and start up a private company which is what we did and basically just carried on doing the ANC's work and we were doing all the sort of uh, Congress aligned political parties and trade unions and government departments and as the years went by you know as a political activist I expected huge change to come to South Africa I expected the uh, Freedom Charter which was the basis of the ANC's philosophy behind its struggle and it never happened you know I didn't see much change the laws of apartheid disappeared but the structures didn't you know apartheid was as we discussed right at the beginning it was this was a spatial thing it was a, a partners you had these black townships and you had uh, uh, most of business was in the hands of white entrepreneurs and all the big corporations came back to South Africa and um, the ANC was not able to implement its policies because once the big guys came back I think all the top ANC people were sent off to the uh, World Bank and the IMF and given instructions about how the world works and I'm sure they were told these nice socialist policies of yours are great but that's not the way the world works and the way it works is the way we want it to work and if you want uh, investment in your country which I'm sure you do then you have to do it our way and that's really what happened and the big corporations came back and uh, many of us realized that winning the political struggle was only part of the struggle uh, and never won the economic struggle in fact the political struggle was the lesser part of it and we were all naive to believe naively believed that once you have political power then you have all the power but it doesn't work like that at all um, in fact uh, a government like most governments today they take the instructions from higher powers from the financial powers from the large banks from the world banks and from the huge corporations and from the uh, central banks which are privately owned and so I became a bit depressed about this situation and once I began to understand the power of money and the power of finance and that the world is really run by the guys who control the money by the by the central banks of the world and the central bank of the central banks and the huge financial interests in this country the gold mines and the big agricultural interests they are the guys who really issue the instructions about what laws to pass so in fact it's not the government that's at the top of the pyramid it's the finance guys so after looking and understanding the power of money I started to rethink the basis of my activism and I realized that well if these guys can control the world through money surely if the people themselves could create their own money system or we could create some kind of alternative uh, 
means of exchange without using their system, surely then the slogan that we'd always chanted for years and years, power to the people, <laughs> could be realized. And if power is really held by those who control the means of exchange, then surely if people can recapture the means of exchange, then surely you've recaptured power. So we began to experiment in the late 1990s and early 2000s, looking at alternative monetary systems, alternative currencies, these things come in many different names, or alternative exchange systems. So money is really about, the higher concept is exchange, and money is one of the methods, historical methods, that we use to facil facilitate exchange. There are many other ways of doing it. Most of us can't believe that uh, there could be a world without money because we see it as one of the primary elements of existence, like energy or matter or air or water. Um, one of the components, a constant of the universe. And it's when you look at history, you realize that it's not. It's actually it's quite a modern, modern invention, if you like. But whoever, whoever throughout history has controlled the means of exchange, you go back thousands of years, even before money had been discovered, those who controlled exchange controlled the society. You go back to ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt and all these places where there was nothing in the historical record that represents money. But they still controlled exchange by centralizing everything and then redistributing it. So all the peasants had to bring in their produce, which was kept at the palace or the ware central warehouse, and then it would be redistributed, and most of it would be given to the non-producing parasitic class, and then the remainder would be uh, redistributed to the people, which is almost how the money system works as well. So when you study uh, the question of money at university, they give you this abstract idea that money is just is a medium of exchange, it's a store of value, and it's a way of valuing things or a system of, of, of accounting. And clearly money is very much more than that. As I've explained, uh, whatever money or exchange system there is, it's always been hijacked by someone. And usually that is those who have the means to force people, in other words, the king who has soldiers and weapons that can enforce the will of the king, um, as controlled exchange and controlled money. And even today, who controls money? It's essentially a combination between the government that creates legal tender. So it says there's only one way you can exchange money in this country, and that's using our monetary system, whether that's called rands or euros or dollars. And the money is issued by banks who create it out of fresh air and lend it to us at a cost and we have to pay back for the use of their money. And when you look at it today, money is totally digital. There is a little bit of cash in our pockets, but even that 
you have to have it in your bank account before it's issued as paper. So if money is just numbers on computers going up and down, debits and credits, so I buy something, my account goes down and the shop's account goes up, why is there even a need for the money if it's just numbers going up and down? So why can't we create a similar system that's moneyless, that has no money, but it just records credits and debits? And that's what we did. It's an old idea, but we kind of digitized it and put it on the internet for the very first time, simply to record the transfer of energy or value. And to explain it very simply, say I advertise that I am selling a bicycle, as anyone would in any economy. You advertise what you have for sale. Someone comes along and says, I want that bicycle. And they simply climb on the bicycle and ride away without handing over any money. But then I go to the computer and I record what happened. I said, I've provided a bicycle. It had a value of 500. Where did I get that value from? Well, currently we just use the rand price, what the person would have paid in rands. But it doesn't have to be a supply of rands. And we simply record that I have been credited 500 points, as it were, 500 digital rands or whatever name you want to give it. And the other person is debited 500 points. So we didn't have to have those points pre-existing because it's just counting points. It's just counting value. It's just a measuring system like liters or kilograms. There's no need for a quantity of it. So now I've got 500 points, the other person's got minus 500 points, which is exactly what happens in the monetary system. And my 500 points represents what I can receive from others. So in a sense, I've created my own money. And the other person is, with the minus 500, is now not in debt, but obligated to give something back. So they give something back to someone else, they sell something, and they bring their balance back to zero. And I buy something and mine goes down towards zero and then we're back at square one. And that's how transaction can take place. So um, um Tim, it, it kind of kind of sounds a bit like and um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it kind of sounds a bit like um Bitcoin and these uh, virtual monies. Um, or in Kenya we've got Mpesa, is it, and it, it preceded all of this, but is it a similar concept to that or is it different? It's actually very different because um, although bit, it sounds like Bitcoin because it's a digital currency, um, in my mind all these cryptocurrencies are still money in the sense that they have to be created. There has to be a supply of them and you have to be able to count them. And there has to be a limited supply of them because if there was an infinite supply then it becomes meaningless. So in order to have value, the coin or the imagined coin has to have value. Whereas what I'm talking about and we call our currency here in South Africa, we call it the talent. And that's really just a name 
So, as I said, it's more like a unit of measure. So you can't say to me, how many kilometers are there in the world? That's a meaningless, meaningless question, because it measures. It's not a quantity of something. So our currency isn't a quantity, and it has no value in itself. It's just a name for a unit of measure. So what really took place was the transfer of value from A to B. So you simply measuring that and keeping a record of it. So there's no creation process, there's no mining as with bitcoins where you have to create them. And with bitcoins there's a maximum number of bitcoins that can never be created. So in my mind it's the same thing because whoever controls the creation process controls the system. Whereas in our system there's no creation process, so everyone is equal. So there's no one can hijack the system, and as we see with the cryptos, they're more or less turned into kind of investment vehicles, speculation vehicles, and the coins end up in the hands of the few, and that gives them power over the others. Whereas in the community exchange system, that can't happen, because you can only receive what you give, and you can only give what you receive. So there's always that limitation. So, Tim, I, I have a question, and I'm in a way I'm really grateful that this is a virtual sort of podcast recording, so neither you nor Barry can see that I'm like emphatically like banging my hands on, on my desk, um, sort of as you were talking about like leftist politics and, and you know, the kind of denouncing capitalism as the be-all and end-all uh, of things. So that's really cool. Um, and you spoke about something really interesting, which was kind of this idea of like, you know, representational justice doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means. Because again, you know, power is very much economic and financial. And if you don't have either of those things, the system it isn't even broken, but the system works by design, which is, you know, in a very capitalist kind of way. And so I guess I'm kind of curious to understand, and you've spoken a, a little bit about community exchange and 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 also some stuff around like blockchain and how those uh, how those systems work. And I'm sort of curious to understand like what your engagement has been like with people when you talk about um, sort of these leftist kind of political leanings, and especially now when I think social media has made the process of like. I was I almost want to say like radicalizing the youth a lot quicker. Um it's a lot easier to I think see what's happening in the world and be like, "Oh my gosh, capitalism is like not a system that actually works and like maybe we should think about it differently." Um so yeah, I I'm I'm curious to understand uh, your experience of, of speaking to people about this and and whether you think things have gotten better um over the last couple of years. Well, I'm not sure what better or worse is, you know. Um I don't like to th talk or even think about, uh, think in terms of left and right politics anymore. For me, this is beyond politics, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, we're not trying to challenge the conventional money system, though, of course, I'd love to see the end of it, because we're all living up under the tyranny of money, you know, and capitalism itself is a social system based on the notion of money. Most Mostly it's never described that way because we just take money as, a, as I said like a constant of the universe and we can't imagine um, Human beings living in society without money. So even if 
when we talk about socialism or communism or any ism you like, that constant is always there. There's always this idea that there's money. So imagine if you take away the concept of money. Can you have a moneyless economy? Does that even make sense? Is an economy an economy if there's no money? And what what is the economy? What What is the object of this thing that we call the economy? And if you look at it closely, you you know, the, the textbooks say it's, oh, economy is the place where we produce and exchange goods and all this sort of thing. And essentially it's not. You know, what drives economy is millions of people and millions of businesses with a single object, and that is to make money, to make a profit. You go into business, you don't really care what the hell you produce, so long as it's producing money. And clearly big corporations don't really care that they're producing Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola. They're just there to make money or sell weapons, you know, they're not, uh, there's no social reason for these things. So even people, they go to university and they get degrees. And why? Because they want to get jobs to earn money. And we're all just focused on ways to get money. Imagine if you take that out of the equation altogether, the whole concept of money, and uh, you replace it with exchange. How do we exchange fairly um, and exchange, create an exchange system that no one can benefit from. I mean, in the sense of creating a parasitic class that lives with the rest of society, which is what we have now, which is one of the effects of the money system. If you take control of that money system, if you are in control of the issuance of the currency, then you're in control of the system. And that's so obvious how it works. And we call that capitalism. But take away the whole notion of money and have only fair exchange in its place. What are you left with? Can we even, as I said, can we talk about a moneyless economy? Do we even call that thing an economy? Because we're not producing things anymore just to make money. We're producing things to exchange. And it's a different world altogether. You know, we left and right politics almost becomes meaningless because money systems tend to map with countries. So if you've now got local community exchange exchanges, where does the whole notion of a country come into this? Because you don't need it. You don't need uh, some huge object called government that rules over this space forcing this money down our throats, uh, creating legal tender and saying we have to be part of this economy instead of rather just producing things that we need locally and slowing down this monster that is destroying our earth. And to my mind, this is the only way we can do it. You know, if we're still focused on money, then money needs to grow because we need to pay off this interest. And that's why we have these economies that have to grow. They have to grow, otherwise it collapses. And the money system, everyone's investing their money and expecting it to grow. And we know it can't carry on. It's destroying the earth. So I can go on talking like this forever, but uh, I um, hope I'm getting across the point. Yes, and it's, it's, um, it's truly fascinating because it really takes us back to to the notion of barter, 
you you've got something uh, you need something i've got something i need something and we do a, a um a fair exchange and i think it's 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 kind of fascinating that that your thinking has gone back to that but it is really the root of society um yeah. i just wanted to ask in terms of of the use of community exchange has it taken off for people using it are there any examples where it is being used by people extensively or not yes it it's um well firstly it's 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 not barter because uh, just because we're not using money barter is really uh, a form of exchange that takes place between uh individuals like i have something and you have something but this is it's really a replacement for money where you don't have to do that so i sell you the bicycle you're not obligated to me in any way whatsoever in fact it's just a one way thing you get the bicycle but then you're obligated to someone else which is exactly what money does you know you work and you earn some money yeah. but you don't spend it from the place where you got the money you spend it at pick and pay or Woolworths so it moves around it's an exchange system that does what money does but without all its negative effects cs started in cape town with the single experimental thing and it's now there's over a thousand of these in our system and there's many of these things popping up all over the world everyone's experimenting and we do we we don't only do as i described we encourage all forms of exchange so there's like a whole ecosystem of methods that you can use you can use time banking time trading bartering which is quite easy these days when computers can make the choices for you there's all kinds of ways of swapping and sharing and gifting and uh if you look through history there's so many different ways that people have used to exchange things and then of course exchange has many dimensions you know there's one to one exchange one with many many to many many to one <laughs> and you know uh, other dimensions like time dimensions whether the people are close to you or far from you i don't mean just geographically but you know if you're dealing with relatives it's one thing if you if you're trading with people you don't know or don't trust it's another thing so there's all kinds of methods and I encourage people to use all kinds of things we can bring all these different things together and the marketplace as it were will sort out which ones are the best and which are the most viable and which are the fairest and that's the only way of doing it it's like uh, getting out of the prison you don't know exactly how to get out you just keep trying things and eventually you make a key that works and it's successful So it's the same approach you know you just make keys and as i i i i use the prison escape as a metaphor for the world you know we we're essentially in this prison and we're all slaves working away without really realizing that we're trapped in this money prison which we need to get out of you know it's destroying our earth and how can we make the keys do we need a high tech key or can we just use the low tech wooden key like we did and uh, as i've been trying to say the low tech solutions are often the best and they work very well and no one suspects you of using them and <laughs> 
And the ways around all these huge systems that we think are impossible to defeat. And we can do it, you know, we just got to put our minds to it and tackle it exactly the way we did in the prison, one door at a time, one barrier at a time, and eventually you'll make your way to the front door, which is, in my mind, the front door is freedom, and as it was for us, and what does freedom look like? And I think it's a world without money, without selling our souls to capitalists or to the money guys, and it's free to exchange and to live a life free of oppressive governments and things. So that's that's my and, story. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I was, was going to, to ask you to, as uh, the final thing, just to hand uh, what, what the baton would look like that you handed over. But you've said, uh, you've kind of really said that, you've uh, kind of encapsulated. And I think by going back to your prison escape metaphor, I think it's really a great metaphor in terms of, of, of perseverance, of, of working against the odds. I think people, young people, feel defeated sometimes. And, uh, you know, you faced 12 years incarceration and you didn't feel defeated. You were looking for ways out. Um, Karen, I'm not sure if you want to, as the recipient of the, of the baton, if you've got anything to say in closing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> it, it, it does feel like quite a weighty kind of baton, um, but I think definitely, definitely grateful to have received it. Um, yeah, I think this has been a really meaningful sort of session and it's been great to kind of like hear firsthand sort of how you went about things, how you thought about things, how you are thinking about things now. Um, yeah, I think this this whole season and I guess even a little bit of last season just feels like the kind of show that folks like me who are getting to do a lot more of the pioneering and stuff like that, um, it feels really necessary just as a point of like introspection and reflection. So yeah, thank you so much for, for just kind of explaining things and, and for sharing sort of what your journey's been like. I'm deeply appreciative. And uh, um, Tim, actually, before I let you go, if there is any final thing you want to say in this notion of, in my metaphor, of handing over the baton or in your metaphor of uh, working your way through the doors with wooden keys. If there's kind of anything you'd like to say in your, uh, to just sort of sum it up. Well, I think they're both uh, excellent metaphors, you know, maybe my, my one's a bit more complex and, uh, but it, 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 um, it combines the whole, you know, it's like we got to, continuously look for freedom. I don't know if that's the the right terms to use for budding uh, computer scientists. <laughs> but uh, if you feel some kind of a mission in life, whatever that is, um, I think one must not be intimidated by it. Uh, always seek out the solutions that maybe are the lowest tech. I think that's often what we find is especially today with all the different uh, methods and systems and the complexity of the global network, we're intimidated by this thing. 
Uh, and the main thing is to do as we did, you know, just take it step by step, small step at a time, test things out, and if they don't work, then you try something else. And uh, just keep your goal in in sight, you know, you can't you can't come up with a plan right at the beginning. That's what we discovered in in the prison. Is uh, some of the prisoners kept saying, "Come up with a plan and stop mucking around and testing things because you're going to get us all caught." And we said we can't come up with a plan because we don't know what we can do and we don't know what's beyond the next door. And that's always the case in life. You don't know what is beyond the next barrier until you breach it, until you step over it. So, yeah, I don't know. That metaphor is a very good one, I think. Uh, seeing yourself, whatever your prison is, even if you don't want to think of it as a prison, but um, your goal to achieve it, take it step by step, use the minimal uh, technology that you can and security is like in the prison. You don't need to ask permission to do things. <laughs> we didn't ask permission to escape, obviously, and we had to hide the fact that we were doing that. So maybe you don't want to broadcast too loudly if you're doing something that is kind of outside of the mainstream. Just get on with doing it. Don't spend your time fighting, uh, rather create things. So with our community exchange, we're not trying to fight the monetary system, but we're just trying to create something better. And um, hopefully one day people will see that. And I think that's the way forward. I hope that's useful. Thank you so much, Tim. And this, it's been, and um, I started off by saying, uh, Tim is a unique person. He's impossible to put into a box and he's innovative creative and inspirational. I think for me, that's what this podcast episode has been about. So thank you so much for your time and thanks for sharing your experience and your wisdom. And um, I wish you luck in everything you do going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Barry and Karen. It's Same been a me. pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, thank I you, hope, you as well. Uh, something I've said will be useful. This podcast is a Grand Geeks production. It is produced by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and edited by Evan Wigdorowitz. It is presented by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and Karen Gammy. Music is done by Callum Cool and logo designed by Evan Wigdorowitz. The companion website is at www.softwareengineer.org.za.